at the very beginning, God said, I will bring someone who will defeat you. And he did. I want to go back from part one that we released a couple of weeks ago. I want to go back to your moment of salvation that you had where you shared that you felt the Holy Spirit's presence in that moment. You felt the Holy Spirit take up residence inside you. So the indwelling that we talk about when we're saved. You also mentioned, though, a continuation of demonic activity after that point. I think you said that you kept your Bible open next to you to the armor of God. You'd wake up, I think like 2 a.m. and you would be reading it over and over again until the voices would quiet. And would I'm wondering if you would share more about what that continued process looked like for you once you were saved. And with your sharing, what recommendations do you have for others who are experiencing similar attacks after they have accepted Christ? Once I was saved, uh, Jesus renewed my will so that I could choose him. So no matter what was going on in my mind or my body, it didn't matter because I knew that Jesus now had a hold of me in my inner being. And this is important. And probably I was used to this because I'd been possessed for two and a half years. So I knew the enemy well. I knew what he was capable of. When he, when he would attack me at night, I could have the wherewithal to reach for Jesus. And I would deny any validity to my other experiences. So that if the enemy flooded me with terror, which they often did. I knew that it was a lie. I gave it no credence whatsoever because they had done that to me for two and a half years. So in the middle of the night, when they would flood me with terror, I'd be awakened. I would immediately call out for Jesus. It, was, it became reflexive. And I would then reach for the Bible and have it open to the one or two scriptures that I knew, and then I would read them because I knew that that's what the Spirit had told me to do when I was saved. Give the Bible authority over my inner life. Okay, I will. I gave more authority to what the Bible said than what I was experiencing. As I would go about my day, I would carry typed scriptures that I would carry in my pocket. And when I when attacked, I would pull one out and I would read it. I would also have praise music in my car going constantly. So I was singing praises to God and I was pulling out scriptures. Now, when the enemy is attack, attacking so blatantly, it's easy to discern because we know it was evil because it's acting evil. The more difficult part is when he would um, instill in me something that might sound right, but I didn't know how it was of God. So sometimes I would have to wait a while to figure out 
It's just what God wants me to do. I'll give you a, a case in point. When I was younger, I, I used to sing, and I loved to sing. So I wanted to sing in the choir. And so Satan, I didn't know was Satan, but I just felt this urge to sign up and sing in the choir, which in and of itself is a good thing, right? But God didn't want me to be in the choir. Mm -hmm. He had other ideas for how he wanted to use me in his kingdom. And so when I went up, I, went, I approached the choir director, and all of a sudden I felt in my spirit like, stop. And I just sat down on, in the pew, and I waited to know if that's what I was to do. Because there was so much activity in my mind, I had to learn how to listen to God. And it was that trial and error. But mostly, I relied on the Bible. So that when Satan would attack, I would recite a scripture. God does not give us a spirit of fear, but a power, a sound mind. That's the truth. Confusion is not of God. Terror and jolts and anxiety, not of God. Mm -hmm. God is love. He's a God of peace. And he's tender with us. How great is the love that God has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. That's what you are. That's what I am. We are children of God. So there's a strong demarcation between the evil one and God, the Holy Spirit, God, Jesus Christ, God, the Father. And yet because the enemy can manifest as an angel of light, that's where we have the problem. And that's where it is evident in abusive kind of practices of churches and also in churches who are cults but pretend to be Christian. It's when they it rely upon spiritual experiences and have no authority outside of themselves so that they are manufacturing their own theology and relying and validating it on spiritual experiences. When what should be our authority about the spiritual realm? Scripture. And it tells us everything we need to know about the spiritual realm, about heaven, about earth, and about hell. Everything. We don't need to have Satan whisper in our ear, titillizing comments about what goes on in the spiritual realm, or to speak new theology through visions. No, that's the snare when we don't give scripture the authority it deserves. And we don't study scripture to understand what God is saying in the context of the people that God was writing to at the time, but also what are the universal truths that he's showing us and wanting us to follow. That was stated so well and so powerfully. Thank you. Mm -hmm. One of the questions that I've heard many times, and not just through being emboldened, but going back 15 years probably in my life is, 
can someone be saved and have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them and still be possessed? And I think a part of what needs to be nuanced for those who are asking this question is also the difference between possession and being attacked. So would you mind breaking that down for us? Right. It's impossible for a Christian to be possessed because the very definition of salvation is when God regenerates our will so that we can choose Christ. Without that, we cannot choose Christ. We require him to regenerate us before we can reach conversion. So that that's a given. We have the Holy Spirit within us who influences our mind and our hearts, our bodies, everything within us. He is renewing. And we needn't go into an altered state to hear him. He is here and now. But when demons attack strongly, it can seem as if they're invading us because their attacks are so strong. Once we reach for Christ and reach for his word, then we realize the power that we have. But when the attack comes, it can be very frightening and it could seem as if we have no protection, but we do. And that's why we have the Bible to teach us how to reach for Christ. Mm. But we cannot be possessed, but we can be attacked because Satan hates God. For those of you who are catching this second part of our conversation, I would highly encourage you to go back to part one. In part one, Sharon shared her story with us, as well as went into kind of the our foundational piece of this entire conversation, which Sharon, I might ask you to repeat it if you don't mind, because I think it's so important that for those who, again, are starting with this conversation, I want everyone to still hear it. And that is the role of Christ's victory in all of the other questions that are going to follow from here. So actually, would you mind go ahead, going ahead and speaking to that again? Sure. When, when Adam and Eve decided to believe the serpent instead of God, they broke fellowship with God. And when that happened, they became vulnerable to Satan's control. They had no defense against his deceptions because they had no union with God. So God, in his mercy, established various covenants that culminated in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what happened at the cross is so significant, we can say it over and over again, because at the cross, Satan was defeated. Now, how did that happen? He was defeated when he took our sin upon himself, and he atoned for it for us. And God's wrath was satisfied 
And then we are justified in the sight of God because we have the righteousness of God. We are in Christ. And when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are saved. We have union with him. We have fellowship with him. And it's because of that that Satan lost. Satan knows he's lost. And what's most important, do we know it? So that when attacks come at us very hard, remember this and reach for Christ. Satan lost at the cross. He defeated Satan and all of his demons because he gave us fellowship and union with God. And we justify, justified us through his to himself. It's wonderful. I think of it as posturing. I've heard this term, heard this used in other forms, but <clears throat> even animals do it. Animals will do this when they're under attack. It's posturing. And so I think of it as Satan and the demonic posturing as if they have more authority than they do. Right. And it's our foundation on Christ and our knowledge of scripture that helps us to persevere and maintain into the knowledge that we have, that that's not actually true, that it is posturing. It's not the reality. Right. Right. It's a lie. That's his power is lie and deception and our ignorance of what he can and cannot do. It's all deception. He is an enemy. And so we fight. We fight because it's an intense battle, but we're not fighting a foe that has equal power with God. God is sovereign over his whole creation, and he is a rebel angel. He can do harm, but he is lost. Yeah, and I think that is such an incredible truth. That we're not, we're not even fighting a battle that could be lost because yeah, it's been won already. And we haven't seen the full fruition of what that means, but we're told about it and we know that it's coming and that's the hope fulfilled that we have. Right. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Sharon, I want to give an introduction to her. So First of all, again, please go back to part one and listen to her testimony. It is incredibly powerful, and it's going to give you the context as to why we at Be Emboldened are having this conversation to begin with. But to give you a little overview anyway, Sharon is an ordained minister in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church and an associated faculty member at Denver Seminary. For many years, she has conducted a private practice in individual marriage and family therapy. She's counseled people who have struggled with spiritual oppression. Currently, she writes and produces videos on spiritual discernment, as well as draws from her own experiences and those of others as she teaches Christians to stand with Christ and his word. She integrates biblical and doctrinal principles of spiritual warfare, and she has several books that are available on Amazon, which I would highly recommend. For those of you as well who may be new to Be Emboldened, we exist for those impacted by religious trauma by providing support for prevention of victimization and re-victimization, creating a safe space to ask questions and to heal. You can learn more about us and how to support this work by visiting beembolden.com. And please like, share this content so that hopefully it can reach those who really need it the most. 
Now, Sharon, we're going to start getting into more of the specific questions that people have. Again, people who have come to be emboldened with a background of true religious abuse, they believed that they were a part of Christianity and come to find out they were not in actuality, whether it be a full-blown cult or it be a cult flavoring, it be cult-ish, so to speak. And so they're coming and they're wondering, I've had these different experiences. I don't know how to make sense of it. I don't know what power Satan has versus what power God has, and I don't understand these different things that I've lived. And so instead of setting them on the shelf and just leaving them there, I want to make sense of this. I want to be better equipped as I walk forward in my Christian walk. So we're going to start breaking this down more for all of our listeners. And with that, the first question I have is in regards to Christ's victory. So with Christ's victory as our foundation, what or whom are angels and what or whom are demons? So how would you describe these two spiritual entities, these two spiritual beings for us? Um, angels were probably created when God created the heavens. So they are spirit beings. They're personal spirit beings, meaning they have a will, intelligence, but they are not like humans, of course, but they can take the form of humans. They mainly appear as men in the Bible because they are speaking to a patriarchal society and men had all authority. So when angels appear, they appear as men, but they are asexual and they don't marry, they don't reproduce but there are myriad of angels all around us. They're holy and good. Their holiness though is not inherently theirs. Like with humans, those who break fellowship with God become evil. They have the attributes of angels, but they're evil. The holy angels are referred to in the Bible as angels. And they have intimate relationship with God. And they worship God. They do his bidding. Angel means messenger. And so when they visit a human being, as they did with Mary, we'll take Mary. When beautiful Gabriel visited Mary and told her that she was going to be with child, he gave exactly the information from God that was needed for her to know what part she was going to play. He didn't expand on what heaven was like, what um, the different spheres of heaven were. He didn't expand on Mary's personal life. No, he only appeared to tell Mary what God was going to do through her and what she should do. And that is a good description and a way that you can test the spirit if an angel is from God. Do they speak for God about what God is going to do? There was nothing that Mary needed to figure out. She didn't have to analyze anything. God took care of it all and she glorified God. She said, my soul glorifies the Lord Almighty. So though Gabriel 
spoke to her, he was not an intermediary between Mary and God. Gabriel conveyed the message and she praised the Lord. So did Zacharias. He received the message and then when he could talk, he praised the Lord. So angels are messengers for God. They have many functions, they have many talents, they can, and they're powerful because they have the power of God. They form uh, in different ways. Any other questions? I think it would be a good time to, to just continue on with what does that power look like? How does that, how, I'm trying to think of how to even say it, but so the angels have the power of God. They're specifically messengers. So, okay, I'm going to say this very blatantly and hopefully my listeners are thinking of it. And so they'll be like, yeah, I, I hear her. That's what I'm thinking too. Being a messenger doesn't sound very powerful. Oh, you know what I mean? Like sharing oh, yeah. it doesn't sound powerful. So what does the power look like? How does that actually, I guess, play out in the world? Well, remember that they only have power to do what God tells them to do. So let's take Zacharias. So that when, when Gabriel appeared to Zacharias, he kind of scoffed. And the angel made him mute in punishment until the baby was born, John was born. And then he could speak. And the first thing he said was, praise God, his name is John. So they have the power to punish. They have the power of discernment. He could discern, he could discern the attitude of Zacharias and the attitude of Mary. Because Mary asked him questions, but she asked it in a way that was an inquiry. It wasn't a skeptic challenging. So they are able to, to discern nuances. Um, they think of what the angels did in Sodom and Gomorrah. They destroyed the city, too. Angels. Mm -hmm. Right? And they did, the, they, did the, they did the bidding of God to deliver Lot from, destruct, from destruction. So that they work behind the scenes and primarily they are invisible. We by faith know that they are around us and they help us, but, but we don't know very much about them. And why is that? Because when they appear in the Bible, they are only talking about God. They never bring attention to themselves. They do God's bidding. They are in perfect union with him. So we actually don't know. I remember once I was in Denver during a snowstorm driving to, drive, driving to Boulder. And I was driving up along a ramp to get on to the highway to go to Boulder. And all of a sudden I hit ice that was really bad. And my whole car kept going off the edge. And I thought I was really gonna go into the, off the edge of the ramp. And I, all of a sudden I felt it's just being lifted up, put back on the ramp. Mm -hmm. 
And I praise God. I just said, oh, thank you, Lord, because that's what I thought. I thought, angels have just saved my life and put my car back on the ramp. I never saw an angel. All I did was know that God had provided for me, saved me. I think what you've shared, not only your story, but what we do and do not see in scripture, sometimes I think we can miss that what's not in scripture may also be a, have a point. There may be a point to the fact that it's not in there. That's right. And the point that there isn't so much information there is that angels are not where our attention is to go. No. no that's what you're speaking to is our, our focus, our praise, our worship, our attention, our conversation our prayers, that is good. That goes to God right. and it doesn't go to the angels. And so, and I think this is a great moment to say the conversation that you and I are having today isn't to bring greater attention or undue attention to areas of the spiritual realm that are not intended to be the focus. The right. intention of our conversation is to bring clarity for people who have, and maybe are still suffering so that they can be better equipped, be strengthened to persevere in their journey with God right. and their, their forward moving faith. And so with that, I do also want to touch on what are demons and what power do they have? And I have some specific questions then like sub questions that I'll bring up to you after of things that have been posed to me specifically, but overall in general, how would you answer this question? I would say that um, demons were angels when God created them. And probably they, they were created when God created the heavens. We read in Job about, he says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation, when the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy, which points back to Genesis 1. One, because angels are associated with heavens. And they, then we have the issue of Satan, who was a powerful angel, and he defected because he wanted to be God. Um, Augustine thought it was pride. Um, Calvin thought it was unfaithfulness to God. Whatever his motivation, sometime between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, Satan defected and the other angels came with him. They have the attributes of angels. So all of the attributes I said, of, for instance, Gabriel, Satan has. They respond to nuances. They have power of some kind. There are only two spiritual sources in the Bible, God and Satan, so that Satan has some kind of power. They have some kind of abilities. They know human beings very well. They have been watching them for centuries. So they know how what it, who we are in our fallen nature and who we are in our redeemed nature. They are pure evil. When I was possessed, I was astounded that they had not an ounce of goodness in them. 
while I was pleading for my life, they laughed and scoffed. I could detect not an ounce of goodness in them. So you think of a supernatural being who hates God and wants to, wants to be God and does so, that does so through his deceptions and attacks and terrorizing people in working through people who are inclined to do evil. That is what he does. But God had a better plan, a better plan for his universe. And we keep this in perspective. At the very beginning, God said, I will bring someone who will defeat you. And he did. So we should not be ignorant of Satan's devices, but we don't have to fear him. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest questions I've gotten is, can demons read our mind? And I want to give some context to this, Sharon, as you would probably imagine anyway. But when I'm asked this, it's because it seems like they can because of the thoughts that people will get in their heads. So they'll have, it's like, this is how someone would describe it. It's as if the thought was just dropped into my mind and I can tell it's not my own. It's, it doesn't make sense for what I'm thinking about or what I'm doing with my day. Um, let me give an example. Going about your day, you're fine, you're having a good day, and all of a sudden you have this thought drop in your head of, I should take an entire bottle of pills and kill myself. Right. Well, where on earth did that come from? Right. This is a, and in such a matter of fact way. And so that's an example of where this question is coming from is, can they read my mind? Can they give me thoughts? Basically that, that interplay. Do you have a response for this? I do. And I have counseled many people who have felt the same experience that you just described. Um, one 19-year-old one Christian girl raised in the church was living at home and she was going to an inner city university and she realized that her thought, she'd have a thought and then all of a sudden it would turn evil. Like, why don't you kill yourself? Or you're so stupid. Or she drops something, and then the thought would be, stupid Jamie, what's wrong with you? Can't even carry a shoe? Very derogatory. And she became depressed, wanting to isolate, wanting not to go to school, because these thoughts got, were really tearing her down. So finally, she told her mother, who brought her to see me, and we prayed, and I affirmed that this could likely be a demon who was turning her thoughts into something evil. But to be that good, Satan has to be able to read our minds. If our minds are going one way, and then he turns it around to go another way, he has to be able to pick up on the nuances of our thought life. Now, I taught her how to use scripture to battle. And we also prayed 
that Christ would protect her from this evil and bring her a, a sense of his spirit in her life. And she, I gave her a list of scriptures to carry around. And she did the same thing that I did when I was first saved. She would recite the scripture. She would not talk to the, to the, de to the demon. She would just recite the scripture, affirm her position in Christ, and affirm who she was. And eventually that voice just faded away. It just left her. And within a month and a half, it was gone. She did this because she had the spirit of God in her. And she could do it. So it sounds like, <laughs> yes, they can put thoughts into our head. But to be able to fully read our minds, when I look at both of these questions and I've gone to scripture for, I struggle with, okay, what evidence do we have beyond our experience of it? Because some, some questions I've gotten in response have been, well, what if it is our own thoughts? What if it is, and again, it seemingly it can be so out of nowhere that we can know ourselves, gosh, that just doesn't make sense. But do we have any, any thing in scripture that we can go back to that, uh, what is the word I'm looking for exactly? Oh, where we have precedent. I was like, it's at least an illegal term. Like, do we have precedence for it in scripture that you know of? We do in this sense that when God uh, makes us, he describes us in various ways. Like when God breathed life into Adam, the first human, and that means he breathed into him a spiritual, spiritual life, a spiritual soul, a functioning mind. So we are soul, mind, and heart. And these function as a whole. Spirit, soul, and mind function as a whole. And during the fall, all of these became infected with sin. Our minds, our spirits because we had lost a relationship with God and our bodies became infected with sin. It laced through us. We were still made in the image of God, but we were tainted by sin. So that when Christ redeems us, we still have that sin nature and yet God is redeeming us. Because we're spiritual beings and because Satan is spirit, he can read our minds. He has access to us as much as God allows. But we have the Spirit of God in us who is protecting and emboldening on us to live a life that is holy and of God. So we needn't be afraid of this. But we do not live in a Christian bubble that protects us from evil. We just don't. Satan can attack us, and yet we know the one who has defeated him. And God is sovereign over this rebel angel. He will get his comeuppance, and he does restrain him. So though we may have a trial of him doing harm in some way to us, confusing us, as he did with the girl, Jamie, 
We come through these trials and we're stronger when we cling to Christ. So it's not something that we should be afraid of, but I don't think there's any evidence in scripture that says that he can't read our minds. Mm -hmm. Not really. Look what he did with Adam and Eve. They were perfectly holy. They had no sin and Satan approached them and he knew them well enough to tempt them to sin. So interesting. This is something I'm going to have to think about more because I've, I've heard, I've more so heard the other side. I've heard people and I am, I'm sure it's denominational where people would say, no, he can't read our minds. Your mind right. is safe. And yet he does. There are so many stories where it happens. And of course, we always want to go back to scripture, but like you said, we don't, we don't have evidence that he can't. No. And yeah, so I, that's kind of an asterisk for me of something I want to go back and think through more for myself. And I want to say that, you know, right here for anyone who's listening, who's like, oh my goodness, I hadn't, I hadn't thought that that was a possibility before. And yet again, I have personal examples where I have felt oppression. I have felt spiritually attacked. And in my head, I've rebuked it in Jesus's name. And I haven't even said it aloud. Right. And it still, quote unquote, worked. (laughs) You know, God still stepped in. Now, was that because God could hear me? And so he stepped in? Or was it because he could hear me and he had to leave? Now, I don't know. And so again, that's something that... I'm going to be processing more after this conversation. I appreciate you sharing where you've landed and why. I think it's a good consideration for everyone to have. And I think the most important piece of what you said is that ultimately, if the enemy can read our minds, it doesn't actually matter. It doesn't matter. Because he's still lost and he still doesn't have the authority over us. I think people have, have taken... Um, the mind we have the mind of Christ to to mean that we are somehow are insulated from Satan reading our minds, but if that's not what that means, it means we have the mind of Christ, meaning that within us we have the Spirit, and because the Spirit always agrees with Scripture, and we are in Christ, we we have His power, His power, and His ability to discern good from evil, which is the most important. We can discern good from evil. You know when your mind goes off track, you went, huh? Where'd mm-hmm. that come from? Jesus. Call up for Jesus. Mm-hmm. There's something else that you mentioned. I can't remember what exactly you said that made me think of this, but I want to go ahead and ask you this question because I don't want to forget, and I'm not sure that I have it written down for later. I have heard stories of leaders and individuals, but specifically I'm thinking about leaders right now, who will engage with someone who's saying that they're, they're experiencing de- demonic attack, whether they've, they've come to Christ already or not. Uh, some, in some examples they have, and in some examples they haven't. So maybe there is possession occurring. And the way it's handled is the demon is spoken to, like you mentioned in part one of your story, part one of this series where you shared your own story. And the scripture that's being used for this is when Jesus asked 
the possessed man, what is your name? Speaking to the the demons with him. And they said, we are legion, you know, because we are many. Mm -hmm. And that's used as a basis to actually engage with the demonic. Now, where that transitions to, and I've seen this happen with people, is they then start conversing and actually interacting and having a conversation with whatever attack they're they're under versus focusing on God, calling out to God, reading scripture, renewing their minds, focusing in that direction, and not actually giving this entity kind of the time of day. That's right. But this this piece, this example of Jesus with this man who had many with many demons possessing him at one time, it morphs and it's spilled over in this other way of people individually being like, well, I'm going to engage. Why are you here? Who are you? What are you here for? And would you please respond to this? Because it's it's really concerning. I know it's very disconcerting. Um. There's so much to say, but let me begin with when Jesus casts out demons in the Gospels, he is demonstrating that he has power over the demonic realm. It's a sign that points to him as Savior of the world. He healed, he raised people from the dead, he conquered death, he conquers illness, and he conquered Satan so that he is demonstrating that he is the son of God by the signs of wonders. When the the apostles then began planting churches and proclaiming the gospel, they also had signs and wonders as validating the message that they were giving, that the Christ had come in the flesh and had died and rose again and saved us. But... After that, you don't hear much about people casting out demons. The Gerasenine demoniac was indeed, had a legion, had many demons. And he did ask the demons their name, but they gave a number, which arguably is not a name. It's just a number. But as I mentioned in the first session, uh, he he healed um, the girl who was sick and possessed by a demon without even seeing her. And one man he healed by putting, of course, mud in his eyes, but we don't do that, do we? Or spitting at the mud. Calling on the name of a demon actually is still practiced in some Aboriginal cultures when they have a demon. They say you have to know the name of the demon before you can cast it out. But as we've been talking about, Jesus defeated defeated him at the cross. We don't have to know his name, which actually in many cases turns out to be just an everyday kind of feeling like demon of fear or demon of anger or demon of sin. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's just a game, a vicious game. Now, I... I have spoken to a demon, but the most I've ever said is shut up or go. And you know that Jesus didn't use the same formula uh, that other magicians used in the ancient Near East. Sometimes he said go, and sometimes he said, what's your name? 
but he didn't have a standard practice. But the demons knew who he was. He simply used his authority and cast out the demon. And in that sense, we have the authority of Christ over the demons. But what is that authority? If the Holy Spirit prompts me and in a sense commands me to talk directly to the demon, I will. But in the vast majority of cases, I'll help people claim the victory that is Christ and resist the demon, as it says in 1 Peter 5. So there's not a rule, but my inclination is to say, resist the demon, turn to Christ, and he will take care of you. Mm. That's how I work. Yeah, the powers in the name of the demon are knowing the name of the demon, the no. powers in the name of Christ. That's right. And I would offer that naming is very personal. When we think of naming in the garden right from the beginning, right. when we think of naming our children, when someone, if we're talking, and if you really wanted to get my attention and be very intentional, you'd probably say my name before you made another comment. You know, even in conversation, we can add like Sharon and you're like, okay, wow, like she's really speaking. Something important is going to be stated. And so there's something very personal and can even be intimate about the usage of someone's name. That's not the kind of relationship I desire to have with a demon. I don't desire no. to be personal. I don't desire no. to offer a bridge of intimacy or relationship. I desire for it to be gone. And so the relationship I want is with the name of Jesus Christ. That's right. Because you can get very tangled up trying to have a conversation with a demon. They know us very well and they'll back you into a corner. And their, their whole mission is to defeat us. So, and I think that I, I want to go back to before we move on to the next question I want to go back to the point you made about well what is the point and what is shared in scripture Jesus so here's two possibilities did Jesus ask the name when then receive a number but still ask the name because we're supposed to do that and he's modeling what to do or in asking the name and us finding out that there were many and he still got rid of them like that is the point. Look at how powerful our God is. Look how powerful. And Jesus was in a Gentile area where they were surrounded by magicians and exorcists so that they were familiar with his practice so that when they saw what Jesus did and then sent them into the pigs, the people were alarmed. Not that the man was saved, but that they lost their pigs. I mean, they were just like, priority. Why not? Right. Get out of here before we lose any more of our, our animals. That's, that's right. Yeah. That's, that's the level of awareness, except for the man who was saved, who fell on his feet and said, Take me with you. And he said, no, you go back and tell your people what I have done. Be my witness. Yeah. Powerful. Mm -hmm. The naked man who was cutting himself in the tombs now was an evangelist for Jesus Christ. What a witness. Yeah, it's amazing. There's no way that's not getting attention. No, <laughs> that's right. And they mentioned he put clothes on. <laughs> yes. That's, yes, that's not the attention we were going for. <laughs> no. 
Testimony is the attention we're going for. We've mentioned the term spiritual warfare a few times between part one and so far in this part. And so I want to back up and define that term for people who maybe are unsure of what we're talking about. So what does spiritual warfare mean? And how does all of this come into play in relation to spiritual warfare, all that we're talking about? I think that uh, the intensity of the attacks in the battle make it very apt to call it warfare because it's such a struggle. Even in the um, Ephesians 6 passage, the way that Paul describes it, it's like a Spartan soldier wrestling with an enemy that is quite powerful, and it takes all the energy we have to call out for Christ and put on the armor of God. So in that sense, it's very apt to call it warfare. But we don't build our theology off of metaphors. And so it's very important to know that this is a rebel angel, a created being who is immortal, but he has not lived eternally. He's a created being by God and that he was defeated at the cross. So that in that sense, it's not a war. It's more like a major rebellion. And Satan wants us to join his rebellion against God. That's all of his, all of his, um, Activities in the world are to that end, so that he is God. We know that God is moving creation in another direction. And that he is and will totally redeem his creation when he comes again in all his glory. But until then, we're in that stage they call the already not yet, which I'm sure you've heard. And we are sinners saved by the grace of God who will be attacked by the enemy. Sometimes it's fierce as if we're in war, but he's a defeated foe. How do you think involvement in a religiously abusive group, whether occult or otherwise, interplays with spiritual warfare? I think that the problem is when we let go of the authority of scripture and we rely totally on spiritual experiences. So that the experiences themselves carry equal weight with scripture and sometimes we proof text to make it more authentic. I think that is, that is the way that cults and other practices within groups that become hyper charismatic, control people. Spiritual experiences are mesmerizing. And when you see them, either as a Christian or as a, a non-Christian, they have a memory and a life all of their own. And so it can be so beautiful and so mesmerizing that we forget there's an evil one who can fool us, even though we're Christians. And that's what happens so often in cults and in hyper-charismatic churches. 
that the leader puts more emphasis upon spiritual experiences than the authority of scripture. Now, I could give you some examples of that, but um, let me first speak of scripture. When Peter in Acts 10 was, was going out and evangelizing and proclaiming the word, word, at one point he received a dream that the sheet was coming down, you know, where I'm talking about, and all these reptiles and fish were in it. And then a voice said, Peter, get up and eat. And he was horrified. And he had no idea what this meant. Right? Mm -hmm. In the whole context of the gospel, what was God doing? But the point is this. There was nothing to figure out. Two men came and got him. God had already sent an angel to Cornelius and giving him a message about Paul. The men took him to Cornelius. He entered the home of a Gentile where he wasn't supposed to be as a Jew. And all of a sudden, he got the message. The Gentiles were included in the gospel of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so though the dream was important, of course, we weren't focusing on the images in the dream because God was giving a bigger message. And so Peter didn't have to figure it out. But what happens in the, in the New Age and some of these hyper-charismatic churches is that they pour, put more emphasis on the imagery that God uses than on the message he's sending. And that the message he's sending, he will act out. There's nothing for us to figure out. But that's not taught in cults or in hyper-charismatic churches. How would you apply what you just shared to a dream such as those that the Pharaoh had where Joseph was, well, not Joseph really interpreted, but God interpreted through Joseph. So in that way, I think, okay, there, there was a figuring out to happen, but it wasn't us figuring it out. It wasn't Joseph trying to figure out. He just, he had the answer, but would you help me work that through a little bit? How does this sure. apply in that situation? So God gave him the dream. And then the, the brothers were jealous because of his coat and sold him into slavery. And it was many years later that God fulfilled it. Many years. But you don't hear Joseph ruminating about the dream. You don't hear him figuring it out. He just looked to God to fulfill whatever he was going to fulfill because God was the central figure in Joseph's life whether he was with his family or whether he was in Egypt. The point being is this, that God will answer the dream in his time and way, and he will fulfill whatever the message was. He may have contemplated, Joseph did, immediately after receiving it, but it was a very simple message, which seemed impossible 
that he would rule over his brothers. I mean, it's far-fetched. And of course, his brothers were angry. But it didn't, it didn't stop there, did it? The whole message and the passages in Joseph's life and how he was pivotal in saving Israel and in coalescing Israel. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful story, but God did it. God initiated the vision and God initiated its enactment. Whereas in a, in a hyper-charismatic cult, that's not how it works at all. Hmm. Yes, and in part three of this conversation, we're going to get more, even more into the specifics of what does it end up looking like? Why is that problematic? What is the danger involved as far as someone being in a right relationship with God? And what do we even mean by that? So be sure to catch part three. If this was the first part you saw, I'd highly recommend again that you go back to part one. We're going to continue to get further into specifics shared by people who have either grown up in or found themselves in a spiritually abusive environment, how to discern what's going on and what we can do about it. Thank you.